God saves his people to himself through a mediator. It is through the mediator God's people draw near and obey the king of the new kingdom. Good morning, everyone. How would you approach a very capable and respected, but intimidating king, leader, or a public figure? Follow the ladder of power, rely on your talent, origin, diligence, effort, and the relationship. Seize every opportunity possible to be present in every occasion where that leader may notice you. Be attentive to his needs, fulfill his dreams and desires, express your loyalty, and finally gain his appreciation. This is the way our culture teaches us. You have to be smart, talented, loyal, and get close to him. Then eventually get his trust and appreciation. This is what we learn from our culture and our literature. Chinese love novels like The Ordinary World, 平凡的世界, or The Promotion of Dulala, and English literatures like The Wolf Hall or Hamilton, both tell us such a story of small people becoming prominent figures. But what about God? How do you approach the one who is God? Is it in the same way? Is there a ladder of career development for Christians in the spiritual realm? Or a, a growth path from catechism uh, to seminary in order to gradually draw closer to God? Or to increase one's status and authority in his kingdom? Maybe we should learn to be a guru in spiritual discipline. Is it just like those who get closer to a king, a CEO, or a celebrity? Today's, uh, today's scripture can help us think about that, this question. Please turn your Bible to Exodus 19, which is the text we will hear today. Exodus 19, if you're using a Chinese Union Bible, is on page 71 in Old Testament. Or you can look at your bulletin. Turn to it, and I will, I will read it to you. Chapter 19 in Exodus. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from the Raphidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beasts or men, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned them, warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for giving us this chapter to tell us something about you. I pray that the Holy Spirit can work here to help people understand you. And the most important thing is that help us understand how we approach you, how we can draw near to you. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. If I were to summarize Exodus chapter 1 to 11 in one sentence, Sorry, it's a long sentence. I would say this. The Lord did not forget his people, so he called and used Moses to take the initiative to 
begin a war against the representatives of the rebellious forces toward the Creator, who is the pharaohs of, the, of Egypt. And the Lord was greatly victorious, demonstrating that He is the Lord of the earth and the Savior of His people. From the deliverance of Moses, His calling from the flame of thorns, the miracles, the Passover, to the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, this theme is obvious throughout chapter 1 to 18, that Yahweh is the Lord of the whole earth, and Yahweh is the Redeemer. Now God's people were brought to Mount Sinai. The Red Sea has swallowed up Pharaoh's army, and the promised land is at hand. It seems that the Exodus can finish at chapter 18. The Israelites have escaped slavery and established a governmental organization in chapter 18. So why bother do we have chapter 19 and afterwards? Isn't this where the self-proclaimed mosaic politicians want to end? They want to end at chapter 18, those politicians. If so, according to the general pattern of human history, the next step would be the, the fighting for power. But surprisingly, this is the only first half of the Exodus. It is clear that a, a, a whole new nation was born, but it was a very special nation. And the perfection of governmental organization was not the hallmark of this nation. Chapter 19 tells us that the key to this new nation is that God saves his people to himself through a mediator. It is through the mediator God's people draw near and obey the king of the new kingdom. God saves his people to himself through a mediator. It is through the mediator God's people draw near and obey the king of the new nation. Chapter 19 is a narrative passage, tells us three important features of this new nation. The first is verse 1 to 6 which look back and make the reader realize that they belong to God in a special way. Then the second, verse 7 to 15, where God will actually come down among them and be with his people. Then the third, verse 16 to 25, where because of sin, these this people must draw near to God through a mediator. Let's look at the first part first, which is, Verse 1 to 6, God wants to remind his people that they did not change from surrendering to Pharaoh to now being able to make their own decisions or be an be a, um, independent country. They, are, they, were, they, are, they were bring out for him, for the Lord. Verse 1 to 6. The first verse leads us to a change of scene. Three months have passed and the stage of the Lord's power is now no longer Egypt, but the wilderness of Sinai. If you use any, any map app, um, the wilderness of Sinai is a large piece of land between today's Israel and today's Egypt, namely the, the Sinai Peninsula. If you look at the, the Google, I, look, I looked at the Google map, Google map, there's only three highways across the peninsula, in the north, in the middle, and in the south. This land is larger than the land of Israel, but there are very few towns. Most part of it is desert. 
there's no need for Israel to stay in the wilderness of Sinai. The best way for them to get into the promised land was to go straight through the Sinai Peninsula then to the Jordan River. I, I, I use Google Map to calculate if I walk. It takes like a week, something. But the Bible says they encamped there under the mountain. There are many mountains on the Sinai Peninsula, and it, it is still unknown which mountain in Sinai is the one Bible referring to. But it doesn't seem to be a problem for Moses, because the text says there, there Israel encamped before the mountain. There's a definite article added, to, added in front of the word mountain. So we wonder which mountain. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, when Moses was shepherding his flock on the Sinai Peninsula, God appeared to him in a certain mountain and said, This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now they came to this mountain again. God fulfilled his promise given to Moses. And this is the sign that Moses was sent by God. If there's still any doubt among, among those Israelites that, that Moses was, was crazy, or Moses listened to something in the dream, now they understand this is the mountain. God sent Moses and asked Moses to bring them here to serve and worship the Lord. God has proven has proven to his people his relationship with Israel through Moses. In the past, God met Moses in this location and spoke to him. Now, God will speak to all the people here through Moses, still here. The Israelites probably thought that being free from Pharaoh meant that they could build a nation of their own, just as they had seen other people and other nations do. Moses, the national hero, was a deserving king, just as other nations had made their hero into a monarch. And the, and the paramilitary hierarchy established in chapter 18 was a system of government for this new nation. So behold, a new independent autonomous nation was about to rise in the wilderness of Sinai just as their descendants had done upon their return to Palestine in 1947. However, independence was not God's purpose for Israel, nor was it his purpose to lead them out of Egypt. Moses won't be their king. God, through Moses, had three purposes for the Israelites, which were related to their hard-won freedom. The first feature it was not Israelites themselves who strove to start an uprising and fled from Egypt. On the contrary, they only lamented and complained in Egypt. They didn't do anything. Nor was it Moses who led them out of Egypt. In fact, if, no, if Moses not, meeting, not met God, he would remain a foreign son-in-law in the house of a median priest. It was God's encounter with Moses here 
and God's faithfulness to keep the covenant made with their forefathers that saved the Israelites. So verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The premise of independence is that one saves, his, saves himself. But it was not they themselves saved Israel, but the Lord saved Israel. It was God who struck the Egyptians and allowed, allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt. And it was God who showed up at the Red Sea and then swallowed the, the pursuers. The people of early Palestine believed that the eagle trained its flight by carrying the, the young on the back. So the Lord used this idea or this illustration to say to them, I am taking you on my wings to leave Egypt. And God did not even ask the Israelites to put up a little force, like faint at an Egyptian fortress or hold the enemy back. God seemed to have deliberately left the Israelites without any credit for the exodus. The only thing Israelites did on their own was to eat up a Passover meal, lest they be struck down by the angel of destruction. They can't find water in the wilderness. They can't cultivate any food. The, the, the water from the rock, the manor, were all provided by God. God did this for a purpose. The Israelites did not have the slightest opportunity to boast about their freedom from Egyptian slavery. And when they look back on the important deliverance, they had to say with a sigh of relief, it was all by the grace of God. So this is the first feature of the kingdom. And then the second, brought you to myself, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God's purpose is to brought to me, obey my voice, keep my covenant, and be my possession. So we, we, we read a lot of my or me here. The word to my indicates the relationship between Israel and God and the words to obey me, keep me, keep my, indicates what the expression or practice of this relationship should be something owned by God. Obey my voice, keep my covenant. The relationship should look like being obedience and being owned by God. Why? Because all the earth is mine. This cause and effect relationship may seem strange, but God is actually saying, because all the earth is mine, it belongs to me, all the nations belongs to me, and you were chosen by me from among the nations, made a covenant with you that you would be a people who hear me, belong to me, bear my name, and obey me. Here the phrase, be my treasured possession, is repeated again, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 29 and verse 3, when David said, 
I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So here in First Chronicles chapter 29, David had prepared many materials for the temple. But David said, some of them are my own. Likewise, although the whole nation belongs to God, there is a special people God has set apart especially for himself. God did not save Israelites and let them decide whether they want to sing or not. This group of people is God's own possession. Then the third feature of this new nation, this, God, uh, this group of people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priest is not unfamiliar to people of Israel. There were priests in Egypt, in Midian, everywhere. Every, every nation, every people, every group of people if they worship a kind of God, in a, in a general religious sense, a, a priest is an elected person or persons within a community who are considered qualified to worship a certain God and teach on, his, on that God's behalf. But Israel was a kingdom of priests. Notice that this is the second time the word kingdom or nation appears in the Bible. The first time was in the promise of God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 6. So here God says, you establish a kingdom or a nation, but it will be a priestly nation. That is, representing God, proclaiming God, and worshiping God to the world, to show to the world that there is a true God. The main way they do this is by being priests, the whole nation becoming a nation of priests. And their main way of being priests is holiness, that is, separation from the world. Separated from the world is the essence of the word holiness. They should live a life distinct from other nations and communities. And their way of life should be free from influences of human depravity, revealing to the world a good, loving, gracious, and holy God. The group of Old Testament people is a prototype of us, New Testament Christians. We also have no merit in escaping the power of sin and death. No Christian can say, I saved myself. I found God by myself. I believed the Bible by myself. I did all the requirements of the Bible by myself. I brought my, by myself to God by myself. Nobody can say that. It is God who chose us, and he regenerated us, give us faith, and, and, give us, and help us trust in the one Savior who bore the penalty of sin in our place. And it is that Savior gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could understand and have the power to follow his word. 
Christians, you are not saved to have a so-called good relationship with God or to enter into heaven, but you are saved in, into one kingdom, the Church of Christ, separated from the world on earth. You are going to display the ethics of the kingdom, the laws of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom to the world. The Church of Christ is separated from the world on earth. So Christians, this is what, what, it, what it means to be saved. To stop living for yourself. Actually, you are living for Satan. And to live for the one who saves you. To display the goodness of the Savior to the world among a community of priests. But in addition to coming out, God did something else. He wanted to come down. That's verse 7 to 15. The Lord come down, and we should hear him. In verse, 9, in verse 9, God tells Moses what he will do. Verse 9 says, here, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. The Lord will come down, but the Israelites need to prepare themselves for this. God was going to come to his people, but two things happened before God came to his people. First, it was God's people who responded to God in verse 7. Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The, the decision that the Lord would come was made after God heard the response of the people of Israel. And, and God's coming occurred after the people responded to God with obedience and, and compliance. This is a, a very unusual order. May I ask, before you became a Christian, do you know all the ethical requirements of the Bible for Christians and then assess whether you can follow them all or not and then decided, okay, I can do it, then become a Christian? Anybody had done that before? I'm afraid not. If you're, if, if you're not yet a Christian, this is a good opportunity for you to ask other Christians about their conversion stories. But frankly, no Christian has ever said, I became a Christian because I evaluated the commands of the Bible one by one and felt it, this is something I can do. So I believed in, in the Lord. Nobody can do that. Believe and follow Jesus Christ because we know that he alone can save us from the consequences of sin. And he alone can bear the wrath of God and the penalty of sin in our place, right? It's, it's not because we think we can do it. It's because he can do it. Christians obey and keep the commands of the Bible because we become God's people. And it is our love for God and obedience to him that drive us to please. We want to please him. 
Of course, we should not deceive people into believing by making it sound costless. Jesus himself did not do this. He repeatedly mentioned the cost of discipleship and being hated as he was in his evangelism. But again, Jesus did not list all the criteria for discipleship as if he wanted to sign a contract with all the disciples. Jesus simply said, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. But why here? The, the people responded. Then God said, I will come down. We can get the answer from what God did from, uh, to the Israelites. God likewise did not give the Ten Commandments in Egypt before they, before they leave Egypt, right? God did not give the Ten Commandments Ten Commandments beforehand and ask the Israelites, look, can you do it? If you can, I will bring you out of Egypt. No. In Korea, there are many brokers who helped North Koreans escape. And that's what they do. If you can get, give them money, pay it, they will help your friend to escape. If you don't give money, sorry, they can't help. But God did not ask the Israelites to, to pay any cost or give any promise. God saved them from bondage and slavery out of his mercy. And then, now, on Mount Sinai, God gave them the law. What would have happened if this order being reversed? Then there's, if this order being reversed, there's no exodus at all. Because the Israelites were not capable of keeping God's law. What would happen if becoming a Christian meant doing what Christ required? No one be can become a Christian. The order of the Exodus helps us understand the order of grace and law, the order of gospel in Christian life. First, God saves us from our sins. And then God teaches us how to live in a way that reveals his glory or show his glory. If obedience is a prerequisite for salvation, then nobody can be saved. So God in Christ saves us first, and we live for Christ second. But at the same time, we must also note that Exodus does give Israel a condition in verse 5. If you will indeed obey my words and keep my covenant. Does this mean that Israel belonged to God was based on their behavior, based on their deeds? In a sense, yes. God's people should live according to God's holy law. Otherwise, they are not a kingdom of priests, they are not a holy nation, and the law is the and the law is a part of the covenant. God made with men. However, do not forget that law contains the means of grace, the ordinances of the, the ordinances of sacrament. Obey my words and keep my covenant did not mean that 
the Israelites cannot sing at all. But first, they should have a heart for holiness and love for God and neighbors. Second, if they sinned, there was a way of grace according to the law of God, a means of grace, which was to ask God for forgiveness through the sacrifice. Sacrifice is part of the covenant and the law. In fact, they are not able to keep the word of God completely. And then that's why they need grace. That's why they need the sacrifice. They need to, to look for and wait for a savior that the sacrifice points to. And that savior is truly victorious over sin. And he can completely tremble on the enemy. This is the same for the Christians, right? We do not have, we, 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 we are not people who can completely do anything Bible requires. And we are not becoming Christian because we can do anything, uh, everything God requires. Our identity as God's people won't lose even if we sinned. God's people should be able to run to the cross when they realize their sin, confess their sin, seek God's mercy and, and seek God's help, repent with all their might in Christ through him. Christ is a fully obedient, fully covenant-keeping mediator, and we are covenant-keeping people because we are in Christ. And the second thing happened before God's coming down is that God's people cleansed themselves. That's verse 10. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. The way, the way Israelites prepare themselves is by consecrate, which, which may include bathing, washing clothes, and, and putting, putting on their neatest clothes to prepare for the coming of God. How we dress outwardly often makes a big difference in our state of being. For example, if you are wearing a suit today, I don't see anybody, but if you are wearing a suit today, and the, or comparing to a people wearing a t-shirt today, I mean, if you talk to a people or talk to someone, there's something different in you. Like in my, in my first job, our company has a requirement that every Monday, the employee must wear a suit and have having a tie. I hate Monday, that's why. <laughs> uh, but I feel a difference. If I pick up a phone call from a customer, uh, if, if I wear a tie the way I speak, and if I wearing a t-shirt the way I speak, that's something different. I, I think that's, that's uh, the, the, the reason why the Israel, Israel people uh, need to wash their clothes and, and uh, the cleanse themselves. It indicates their heart before God. And the Bible often uses the type of clothing worn to symbolize a person's inner cleanliness. And this time, God had not given the law. So God's people did not necessarily know what sin was, although they had a rough idea but consecrate, give them, a, give them a reminder what God wants. It is, it is a spiritual symbol of holiness, of being different from the other days. 
it is not very clear whether it's a command from God or it's something added by Moses. But in any case, it does not mean being close to a woman is unholy. And because in New Testament, we found that physical intimacy in marriage symbolizes the intimacy of Christ and the church. But here, the, the, the point is that for the fear of God, just like Paul teaches, the husband and wife should separate in order to consecrate in prayer. So if people prepare themselves to meeting God, they should be different from other days. Friends, so here's something telling us what you should do in order to welcome the Christ into your heart. If you are not yet a Christian, you have to consecrate yourself and prepare your heart to let Christ in. This means that you need to know the gospel and trust it. See that you cannot save yourself from sin, the of sin. And pray that the Lord will help you to hate sin. Tell this Savior that you need him. And that you want to be, and, and then you tell him you want, you want to be reconciled to God through him. You, you don't become a Christian simply by coming here every week. And you, you need to consecrate yourself and respond to God. If you have never thought or done this before, share your thoughts, questions with any Christians in this room. I think they would love to help you know how to pray and how to become a Christian. If you already consider yourself a Christian, if you think you are saved by God, do you have the heart and mind to say to God, all that the Lord has spoken we will do? Exodus tells us this is a seal of the people in the covenant. Brothers, brothers and sisters, Christians are of God and not of themselves. God is not a demanding Pharaoh. He is very different from Pharaoh. Because Israelites never able to meet Pharaoh's requirements. Pharaoh gave them a whip and punishment. But when God's children failed, God prepared them with the grace to forgive their sins. But the question is, do we have such a heart and mind to say all that the Lord has spoken, we will do? <clears throat> However, the God does not say that you can approach God if you are mindful and self-purified. The remaining verses make us realize that the problem is not yet solved. Look at verse 12. Take care not to go up into a mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand should touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beasts or men, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Although God comes, God's people still, although they already consecrated themselves, but they still cannot approach him. Why? Let's come to the, 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 the third point. Do not go up, but through him, verse 16 to 25. 
self-cleanness or consecrate oneself is not enough for us to come to the living God. This is not only because consecrate yourself is only a is is only an external effort, but even someone stopped all sins and walks in full obedience with the law, he still cannot remove the consequence of his previous sins. Not to mention the fact that he cannot actually stop his external and internal sins. Even when we do good deeds, our inner motives are often complex and contain selfish desires. Yes, we have to be prepared. We have to be mindful and faithful. And that may get one, one person the appreciation of another. But it is not enough to get the person the pleasure of God. They need a, a, something, someone to resolve the penalty of the previous sins. And also they need someone to help with the inner heart. They need a bridge, a mediator, between a holy transcendent God and a finite sinful man. This mediator needs to be able to be accepted by God, to hear and speak to God on behalf of man, and he also needs to be able to speak and proclaim God's message to man on behalf of God. In chapter 19, it is Moses. Moses' role was that of a mediator. It's not by his own effort, because God appointed him. He, Moses was a mediator prepared by God. His birth, his deliverance, his escape, his calling, his resistance and reluctance to calling, and his surrender were all ways that God was shaping him, using him to be a mediator. So then we see the role or the usage of the mediator in verse 16 to 25. Without the mediator, God's coming would have been a disaster for the people. Lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish, and let the priests who come near to the, God, to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. No Israelites could skip the mediator and go directly to God by himself. If he did, death is waiting for him. So what does a mediator do? At, at one of the simplest levels, the mediator serves as a tunnel of communication between man and God. Because the Israelites could not speak to God, they needed Moses. And because the Israelites could not hear from God, they need Moses. If it weren't for the fact that God loves his people and wants to save his people, God wouldn't bother, wouldn't need to bother to have Moses. The mediator is God's provision for salvation and love. God did not stand idly, idly by. God wanted to speak to his people so that they would not only understand God, but also 
knowing God, knowing how to obey God. Through a mediator, God's people will not perish. God speaks to us also through the mediator. And let, let us speak to him through the mediator. That's why we always end our prayer with the name of Christ. Today we do not have Moses, but God speaks to us through Christ. Christ is the Word made flesh, manifesting God completely. We also speak to God through Christ, who himself told us to pray in his name. Without this mediator, our prayers could not come to God. Therefore, no matter how brief your prayer is, do not forget to pray in the name of the Lord. Otherwise, it's a self-talk. But the verse in, 19, uh, in chapter 19 shows us, show us that Moses' role seems to be more than a communicator. Look at verse 9. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. God did something similar in another time and place after Jesus and Peter, James and John waited until uh, on a high mountain. Matt, Matthew 17:5, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." On the same mountain. In the middle of the cloud, the people were told to listen to him. Moses would die. So why should the people believe him forever? Note the uh, last part of verse 9. Believe you forever. How can people believe Moses forever? Because Moses will die. Unless this Moses were only, is, a, is only a symbol. He was, point, it, he was pointing to a greater Moses, the real Moses. God does not need people to trust a messenger forever. Do you need to trust a, a Shun Feng Kuai Di forever? For messenger is only a messenger. God wanted his people to believe in him because Moses foreshadowed a person who, like God, and will be forever. Who is that greater Moses? Who is that greater Moses lives forever? Let's look at verse 14, which is more, ac more accurately translated in ESV. Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. God told the people to consecrate themselves, but Moses consecrated the people. How can Moses consecrate the people? The most likely way is that Moses offered the sacrifices for people. The ordinance of sacrifice had not been given. That will be the later part of Exodus. But Moses probably know what the sacrifice of atonement was. Because in, in chapter 13, God had commanded a sacrifice. So Moses knew that sacrifice means substitution and salvation. 
the mediator is more than a messenger, more than a tunnel of communication. The mediator sets people, sets people apart for holiness. Moses was only a limited messenger, but Moses foreshadowed a true mediator. He is worthy of our trust forever. He is ever present, and he became a priest and a sacrifice to sanctify the people of God in their place. This mediator was foreshadowed and symbolized by Moses in the Old Testament, then by various, and then fully realized in the New Testament in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So how can you approach a God who is great but willing to be close to us? My friends, you may be able to win the favor of a great man in the way I mentioned at the beginning, but you cannot come to God by this. Our best righteousness is but a rag in his sight. But through this new nation, which began in, in the wilderness, he shows us that there is a savior for us. He saves us to be reconciled to him through a mediator. Through this mediator, our sins are forgiven, and we become a part of his kingdom. This is a kingdom of his priests. This is a kingdom belong to him. Representing God to the world, and being a messenger to bring God to others. This is a glorious identity. This is all because of an eternal mediator who died for us on the cross. We need to put our trust in him forever.